Well, we can turn back to the parable we read there in Luke chapter 19, and we'll just think about some lessons from it. Now, the word uh, mina is not one that we're used to saying, and um, a mina, if we wish to know, uh, was a coin that was worth a hundred drachmas. And we might ask what a drachma was. Well, a drachma was a day's wages for laborers in Israel. So uh, a hundred drachmas makes up a mina. So that would be a hundred days salary, which in Jewish terms would be about four months, since they only worked for six days a week. So Amina is the equivalent of four months' salary, and the point of it being mentioned is that it didn't amount to very much. In contrast to, for example, where Jesus speaks about the parable of the talents, well, a talent was worth a great amount, and it would be quite a rare thing to have, to have a talent. Whereas everybody would have amina. It was common. It wasn't worth that much in the currency of the time. And most people, I suppose, would have them in their possession. It's not often that Jesus spoke about or alluded to events that took place in the year when he was born. But in the year that he was born, the King Herod died. And in order for his son to get to be his successor, his son had to go away to get the kingdom. And he had to travel to Rome to get it. At the same time, if people didn't want Herod's son to get that position, they could send along a delegation. And the delegation would explain to the emperor why they didn't want Herod's son to get the kingdom. The, when Herod's son went to Rome to get the kingdom, he discovered that a delegation had also gone there uh, to complain about him getting the kingdom. And amongst the delegation were some of his own relatives. So that was a, a bit of a shock to his perception of life. Uh, when he was away, he arranged for different people in his kingdom to do different things because they expected him to come back. And of course, the, the territory had to be run even though he wasn't there. 
And when he came back, as he did do, he executed those who had objected to him being the ruler. And that's the background to this parable. It was the normal way of doing things in the Roman Empire. If somebody was due to inherit a kingdom, he couldn't just decide to take it, even although it had been his father's. The only person that could decide whether or not he would get the kingdom would be the emperor. And going to the emperor, well, that was a long journey, traveling from Jerusalem uh, to Rome. And it would also be a long process because the emperor uh, wouldn't put events in Judea at the top of his to-do list. And anyway, you'd also have to listen to everything the delegation had to say. But Herod was successful and he got, or Herod's son was successful and he got the kingdom. But that particular process would be very familiar to everybody listening to this parable. Why did Jesus tell it? Well, we're told why he told it there in verse 11. And the reason, he gives two reasons why he was going to tell it. Uh, First reason is because he was near to Jerusalem. And as we read that, we should say to ourselves, Well, what's the point of being near to Jerusalem? And therefore, when we turn to verse 12, we should immediately spot the contrast. Because instead of being near to Jerusalem, Jesus says that this nobleman, he has to go far away to get it. And when we're listening to the parable, we should imagine, well, why is he saying it's far away? But anyway, he told them because it was near to Jerusalem. And the second reason that he told the parable is because they, and I suppose they there are the disciples. But I suppose it could be the others in the crowd because there's a big crowd of them going up to Jerusalem following him after the incident with Zacchaeus. And I suppose they would be saying, the crowd or the disciples, I mean, if if Jesus can get people like Zacchaeus, who after all would know what to do with Minas, he would have plenty of them in his possession and he probably would have taken plenty of them as he was collecting his taxes but anyway the crowd would be listening to this and they would be saying if well if Jesus can get people like Zacchaeus with all his resources into the kingdom 
what a marvelous kingdom this is going to be. But anyway, they were expecting it. And indeed, this parable, it's followed by the account of the, of the arrival in Jerusalem, where the, Jesus sits on the, on the donkey and the ass and rides in, and the crowds are celebrating. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And they're all expecting the kingdom to happen immediately. But before that happens, Jesus tells them this parable. So whatever else the disciples should have been thinking about when they saw Jesus uh, riding into Jerusalem, they should have been thinking, this is not the moment. But sadly, as we read the chapter, they said, this is the moment. But Jesus had said to them, it's not the moment. Indeed, he said to them, in the parable, it's going to be a long time. As we look at the parable, I suppose three questions come to mind. Who is it about? Who is the nobleman? in the parable. And there's also another question. Who gives the kingdom to him? And there's a third question. What happens when he returns? And these three things are are mentioned there in the parable. The nobleman is Jesus. And when did he get the kingdom? Well, Luke actually gives us the answer to that question. And he gives us the answer in the next, uh, in chapter 23, through the question that's given to Jesus by the dying thief. Because the penitent criminal says to Jesus on the cross, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the obvious feature of that particular request is that the kingdom is still future. I mean, isn't it? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. As far as the question is concerned, Jesus hasn't yet gone into his kingdom. So Luke gives us the answer to the question about the kingdom, even when He's asking Jesus, when the criminal asks Jesus to remember him. So in some sense, the kingdom didn't exist when the criminal asked that question. Or asked that request, Lord remember me when you come into your kingdom. He knows he's going to a kingdom. And when you get there... Remember me. Jesus went to Calvary. There he suffered. There he died. Three days later, he rose again. Forty days after that, he went 
a far distance. He went to a far country. He went to a country that nobody can place on a map. If somebody had said to Herod's son, where are you going? Well, I suppose he could have pointed to a map. And he said, I'm going to that country, Rome. It's a long way away. But when Jesus and his ascension, when he went to a far country, it's not on any map anywhere. It's not even on the map of space. There's nowhere in the universe that anybody can point to and say, that is heaven. It's a kind of secret country. A country that does exist. And it's the one that Jesus went to. And the Bible speaks about it many times. For example, in Psalm 24, it talks about the king going up to the ancient doors and asking to be let in. The king of glory arriving at the gates of heaven. And we sang about it in Psalm 21, where the king, when he arrived in God's presence, asked for life forever. And the psalmist tells us that God gave him his request. And when he arrived there in heaven, the heavenly father gave him the kingdom and said to him, sit at my right hand, and of course the right hand is a reference to the throne of God. Sit at my right hand until I give you, make your enemies your footstool. And Jesus therefore got the kingdom. But of course, nobody can see the invisible country, can they? I mean, who knows that he's got it? It was a huge crowning occasion. And if we want to imagine it this way, the whole of heaven would be singing as loud as they could. But not a sound of it was heard on earth. Nobody on earth understood it had taken place. And... As far as the perspective of the parable is concerned, Jesus is now on his way back. He traveled to the distant country. Didn't take him long to get there and received the kingdom. But from the point of view of the parable's emphasis, the king is now on the way back. And what's he going to do when he returns? And as far as the parable is concerned, he's going to do two things. One is, he is going to judge the servants, or at least assess the servants. The ones to whom were given minas. And he's going to ask them what they have done with the minas. 
And then the second thing he's going to do, and he only gives uh, one verse to it, and that's in verse 27. He's going to judge those who opposed him. But the emphasis in the chapter, in the parable, is not on them at the end of the chapter, although he does mention it. The emphasis is on the assessment of the servants. And as we saw there, there are three servants. There's actually ten in the parable uh, to begin with, but um, <clears throat> there's only um, verse, in verse um, 13, he gives the uh, Amina to ten of his servants. But when it comes to the reckoning, we're not told about seven of them. But we are told about three of them. And this assessment of the servants. Who is he speaking about? Well, he's speaking about the ones who have been given this everyday currency. Something that all of them had. And something that each of them had equally. These servants of his, none of them was shown any preference, except that all of them were given the same thing. Each of them, as he says in the parable, was given this common coin which they were to use for the master's benefit. What does that mean? Well, I think the, the meaning is obvious. All of his servants, that's all of his people, they all have the same resources. They've all been given the same resources. What can these resources be? That each of us here who are Christians, that we have. What are the common resources? That's going to be very profitable. And obviously... In the parable, the king knows that if they use this mina, they are going to make a profit. So when we look at ourselves, what do we have that is in common? And you can think of at least three things that we have that we are to use for the master's fortune, we might say. First one is the gospel 
mean, we all have the gospel, don't we? But we aren't given it just for ourselves. We're given it to use for the master's wealth. Another common um, blessing that we have is prayer. And we're to use our prayers to increase the master's wealth. And a third common feature that is found in every servant is how to live. We are to live in such a way that, as Jesus said, that when they see your good works, they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. The wealth of the kingdom, the wealth of the king, is seen in the purpose that he gives these, this common mina for. And how is the kingdom or the Savior's um, possessions enlarged? In what way is his possessions enlarged? I mean, he has everything. Everything spatial. So what is there that enlarges his possession? And of course the answer to that is converts. I mean, what else is there that adds to the Savior's possessions. There once was a time, of course, when he had no converts. That's extraordinary to think about, isn't it? After the first promise was given in the Garden of Eden, how many converts were there at that precise moment? Of course, the answer is none, until, if they did so, Adam and Eve responded, and then Abel, and so on. But you know, it is rather startling, isn't it, to think that the only thing that can be increased is the number of people in the Savior's kingdom. Now this particular amina, well, in everyday life, whatever else could be said about it, it was easy to use. Whatever you went with your mina, you could use it. Go into a shop, there it could be used. If you wanted to give it away, you could do it. It was straightforward just to be utilized. And I think the three things that I've just mentioned, well, they're easy to be utilized. 
aren't they? Telling people about Jesus? Well, that should be normal. Praying for people and asking them to be brought into the kingdom. That should be normal. Living in such a way that our lives attract people to Jesus should be normal. And I don't think it's too much to say that that is what Jesus wants. So these people are assessed. They've all been given the same amount. So it's not a question of talent. But one man, or one person, he comes in there in verse 16, and he says, with great excitement, we can see the excitement, can't we? Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And then there's the other one with five, who got five minas. He had one to start with, but he got five. And he can, we can sense his excitement. Lord, your mina has made five. Is it not a challenging question to ask? Will we be able to say that on the day of accounts? Lord, because we shared the gospel, because we prayed, because we lived the way we should have, There's ten people here in the kingdom. Oh Lord, because we shared the gospel and because we prayed and because we lived Christ-like lives, there's five people in the kingdom. be very wonderful to find people there who trace their presence to what we did. Anyway, that leads, of course, doesn't it, to the interesting question of degrees of glory. Because after all, the man who had, or the person who had one mina and turned it into ten minas, he got ten cities. I mean, that's incredible, isn't it? When you think of a four-month salary getting possession of ten cities. That's incredible reward. Even the one who got 
five cities for his five minas. What an incredible reward. So there they were. They all started with one mina in their pocket. But at the end of the day, one of them's got ten cities, and one has got five, and one has got none. But there are degrees of glory, aren't there? And it's good to think about that. I suppose we have to say, first of all, what it doesn't mean to have different degrees of glory. Anybody who gets to heaven, none of them will be unhappy. They'll all be very happy in heaven. So degrees of glory doesn't mean that there's going to be sad people in heaven. Nor does it mean that um, those who will have the biggest crown will somehow or other have um, done it themselves. Because I'm sure we noticed that both the man who got ten and the one who got five, they said to the Lord, your mina has gained these cities, or gained these ten minas and five minas. So it's while the servants did certain things, it wasn't because they merited their place in heaven. Like Paul, they would all say that they were sinners who just did what they were told. When we think about degrees of glory, one way I've found helpful of thinking about it is just to think of calling, capacity, and closeness. Calling. Now we can see that Jesus has plans for the eternal world. That's obvious in this parable. The, plan, the plans he has for the eternal world, well, in the parable, they involve giving one servant ten cities and one servant five cities. So he's got a plan for them to be involved in doing something in the world to come. All the activities, of course, in heaven will be spiritual, but then the activities connected to the Mina were spiritual. I don't know if it's true or not, but I read this from John Bunyan. I'll just read it for your consideration. Bunyan said, The person who is most in the bosom of God and that so acts for him here, he is the man that will best be able to enjoy most of God in the kingdom of heaven. 
In other words, he's saying, those who spend most time with God in this life will be most capable of enjoying him in the next life. As I say, I don't know if he's right. But who would want to argue with Bunyan? And in any case, God has got a plan. Jesus has a plan. Ten cities. Five cities. And then there's capacity. Well, there's two capacities here, isn't there? One is ten. One is five. There's been a common description, and perhaps it's based on this parable, I don't know, but it is a common description to say in heaven there's all going to be different sized kinds of containers. Each of the redeemed is like a container, and all of them are full. But some are bigger than others. So when we get to heaven if we're his people when we get to heaven we're all going to be full of glory and that'll be wonderful but it's obvious that the one who's got ten cities is a bigger container And then the third thing is closeness. I mean, Jesus, in his glorified humanity, will occupy a certain space. And whatever way the heavenly state is organized, it's inevitable that some will be closer than others. Closer to him than others. I'm sure we've all heard the story of George Whitfield and John Wesley. Although, depending who tells it, the characters can be swapped around. But anyway, some just says George. Somebody asked George Whitfield, would he see John Wesley in heaven? Because they had a disagreement. And a quite a major disagreement. Actually, a disagreement where it's impossible not to take one side. But anyway, they had their disagreement. And the man that asked the question hoped that George would say, No, I won't see him in heaven. And George did say, no, I won't see him in heaven. Then George gave the reason why he wouldn't see him. And the reason that he gave him was that John would be so close to Jesus and George would be so far away. 
personally, not that it matters very much for my opinion, but I think both of them will be close to Jesus. Why? Because of what they did down here. Why has one man got ten cities? Why is he a bigger container? Because of what he did down here. Why has he got a more important role in the eternal world? Because of what he did down here. So, spiritual ambition. But then there's this unfaithful servant. And we could say about him, he was disobedient. You could say he was marked by distrust. And we could say he's marked by defiance. The Lord gave him a mina and said to him, use it. The man said, I'm not going to use it. Even although it's guaranteed to make a profit, I'm not going to use it. I'm not going to use it in any way at all. I'm just going to leave it. And if we just link it to the three points we mentioned earlier, the gospel, prayer, lifestyle, What's going to be said to us about our Mina? Because rest assured, everybody will be asked. I'll be asked. You'll be asked. The parable is very piercing. Anyway, some lessons. In order to use Amina, you don't need a talent. What talents do we need to use a five-pound note? None. What talents do we need to use the mina that God gives us? None. All we have to do is use the mina. The gospel, prayer, and lifestyle. Second one lesson is 
The credit goes to Jesus. If we want to mix the verses, the man who gets ten cities will throw his crown at Jesus' feet. You still have the ten cities, though. But the credit goes to Jesus. It's always his Mina, not ours. And his Mina guarantees growth. Third lesson is the importance of faithfulness. Some people try to get rid of the link between faithfulness and success. But in the parable, the faithful person and the successful person are the same person. So faithfulness is using the mina. And the last lesson is this from the parable. Jesus is on his way. He's got the kingdom. Next stage in the divine program, we might say, is the day of judgment. He's on his way. We're closer to it than ever before. Do you know what that says to me? And I hope it says it to you. We have to use our mina. Because that's, in a sense, is all that we're going to be asked about on the Day of Judgment. What did you do with the mina I gave you? Shall we pray?